You're listening to Just Ask the Question, Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, with this week's edition of Just Ask the Press, where we review the week of news. And with us, as always, is former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and editor-at-large at CQ Roll Call, John T. Bennett. This week, well, we've got a lot to unravel the 354 plus million dollar ruling against Donald Trump in civil court. Alexei Navalny is dead in Russia, and he is, uh, of course, Putin's chief adversary in Russia. And then uh, Trump's statement about it Fannie Willis is on the stand, was on the stand. Will that help or hurt the case against Donald Trump? Kamala Harris is suddenly everywhere meeting with everyone. Is there any significance to that? Ukraine loses another city. Biden blames Congress. And Congress is out for two weeks while they keep the doors open when they come back. A lot to unpack, so stick around. We'll be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karen, with our re- weekly review of the news, Just Ask the Press. With us, as always, is former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call, John T. Bennett. And we're going to start out with the, well, I I guess with fines, it's supposed to be $450 million, or, or if you're adding in the uh, uh, E. Jean Carroll uh, punishment as well. But we'll start with that. Judge Arthur uh, Engerin hit uh, Donald Trump with his biggest punishment to date in a ruling that uh, fined the former president $355 million for fraudulently inflating the values of his properties. There was a 93-page opinion, which, if you've read through, is blistering, and it painted the former president as unremorseful and highly likely to commit fraud again. So with that, Michael? So if— Everyone remembers a long time ago, a lawsuit was filed. Uh, Letitia James, the elected attorney general of New York, filed a civil lawsuit against Donald Trump and his organization, alleging that they engaged in financial fraud, that they valued their properties too high for loans purposes and too low for tax purposes, and that they reaped hundreds of millions of dollars in benefit by getting lower interest rates from the bank because of the elevated prices and paid less in tax because of the deflated values. And she sued saying on behalf of the taxpayers of New York, you can't defraud us taxpayers that way. The banks didn't lose money. but that's beside the point on a lawsuit like this. It's against uh, she's suing on behalf of the uh, the people of of New York, the taxpayer of New York, and they had a, a a multi-week trial. The end of which came yesterday, a day before yesterday, when Judge Ngoron, the 
trial judge issued a blistering opinion detailing the fraud that Trump and his organization and his sons engaged in and his findings that Trump was incredible uh, as a witness, that his sons were unbelievable as a witness, and his daughter, who was not part of the case, had a good memory when her lawyers were asking her questions, but had uh, a failed memory when she was under cross-examination, which she said was um, suspicious. And so Donald Trump was fined $350 million. His two sons were each fined $4 million. They cannot serve on uh, as officers of a New York State corporation for the next couple of years, two years, I think, for the sons and three years for um, former President Trump. But in a in a stroke of uh, good luck for the for the Trumps, he did not require divesting of their properties. Remember, in the earlier decision, which was put on hold, he was going to require that they divest their interests. He did not do that. He said the evidence didn't require that at this point, but he appointed a monitor to monitor the activities of the ongoing Trump organizations in New York for the next three years. Uh, I think Barbara Jones, a former judge, is that person. And he's ordered that the Trump organization hire and pay for an independent compliance officer who will have to report to the court that Trump organization is complying with the rules uh, that they didn't uh, comply with that led to this $350 million decision. So Trump is going to appeal this aspect of the case and an earlier aspect of the case where the judge found that uh, as a matter of law, he engaged in this activity in a, what they call a summary judgment motion, which is evidence taken on the papers without any need for live witnesses. All those things will go up on an appeal. In the meantime, though, for Trump to appeal, he's going to have to post a bond and um, and wait for a period of, of time. Now, he said in a civil deposition that he's got a net liquidity worth of $400 million. So if this is $350 million and the um, defamation judgment is, is $83 million, $350 plus $83 is more than $400. And so um, either he has more liquidity or he'll take out a loan or he'll sell a golf course or um, they won't require the full um, amount of money to be put up in uh, the bond offering. But anyway, it's a substantial amount of money. But most important, I think, Brian, is the judge found Trump's testimony to be incredible. And why is that important? It's important because starting on March the 26th, we're going to have a trial, criminal trial in New York, where he's accused of engaging in similar business fraud activity involving the payment of money to Stormy Daniels, the adult movie uh, actress, and the way that money went, hush money, they called it, so she wouldn't tell a, the alleged affair between her and Trump. The way that money payment went was rather than just Trump paying her directly, which he's allowed to do. I mean, you can pay money I pay you each week to not say good things about, not say bad things about <laughs> me and only say good things, Brian. Um, it's perfectly legal to pay hush money. But what made this criminal, according to the district attorney Bragg, is that they paid it 
circuitously. That is, they paid it through Michael Cohen, Trump's then lawyer, who uh, made the secret payment. And then they had to repay Cohen, the Trump organization did. And they pretended that it was for cult consulting and legal fees. And they entered it on their books as if it were a uh, loan or a legal fee payment for Cohen's work. And that was untrue. It was a repayment of the of the thread, three, of the money paid to Stormy Daniels, and they're being charged now with that scheme to reflect illegal payments. Now illegal payments because of business fraud. And Trump is, may well have to testify in that case. So if he was a completely unbelievable witness in the Letitia James case, and the judge made a point to say that. Every time he opened his mouth, he made the case worse for himself. What's he going to do? <laughs> What's he going to do in a New York case? Is his lawyer going to be able to prevail upon him? Just be quiet and let us try to prove the case without you. Or is his irresistible impulse to talk going to override the judge's, the lawyer's judgment, and he's going to talk himself into a criminal conviction? So that's where that stuff stands. Well, and the question, and, and John <laughs> begs a lot of questions, but how's he going to get the money? Well, he's going to sell Truth Social, right? And he's selling gold tennis shoes, that the most gaudy things I've ever seen in my life. Does any of this, do you think any of this plays with the Trump crowd? Will it keep people from voting for Dear Donnie come November? Well, those are two different groups of people. I think it does fire yep. up the Trump people, absolutely. And he uses this to say, and his allies use this to say um, <clears throat> that they're coming after Trump because they really plan to come after, I guess, all of his supporters. Congress Mike yeah. Turner, who was once more a more moderate uh, person in the House Republican conference, uh, was on television this morning as we tape on, on Sunday morning. And he said that this ruling puts every... American business at risk of having the same kind of case brought against it and its ownership, which is, you know, just preposterous thing to say. But <laughs> this is now standard fare uh, for Republicans, especially House Republicans. But we're seeing it more and more, even with Senate Republicans who a month ago wanted another nominee. And now they're one by one falling in line with the Donald and starting or a third consecutive presidential election cycle to just parrot what he says about all of this. Turner said, and and I'm just using Turner as an example. Um, others are saying the exact same stuff. I guess they all open their talking points email. And Turner <laughs> says that that he doesn't. They just watch Fox right. News. Well, That's there you go. <laughs> he doesn't trust the. Um, he doesn't trust the 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 sentence or the ruling that there was fraud at all. So just, you know, you know, that case against the guy or gal that I don't like, well, that's legitimate, but the one against my guy, eh, it's all BS. So I, I don't think it hurts him with the Trump crowd, as you put it, the MAGA base. Um, yeah, I think it will. What about them. in those seven states? What about those? Well, the, it, it the... does. It, it does matter in the seven states to fire up the base because it, you know, in those seven states that are going to decide this thing in November, it's going to be a turnout election. So you want your folks fired up. But yeah, the problem that you're getting at, Brian, is I don't think this fires up independent voters. The question also about Democrats, because we've got some Democrats, black voters, Hispanic voters, Arab American voters. 
that are frustrated with Joe Biden, but fearing Donald Trump's return or being outraged by all of these cases and sentences that are starting, will they put aside their frustrations with Biden and their different frustrations for those groups and go vote in November? Or do they stay home? And then we get to really the I think the key group is independence. And I haven't seen any polling that suggests that majorities of independents in those seven states or nationally are siding with Trump on all of his many legal problems. So Trump does have a problem, a big problem with independence. But if you look at the polling, Joe Biden isn't bringing them in in huge numbers. So, you know, we're we're kind of where we were a few months ago. Does Joe Manchin not being deciding not to run? Does that have an effect, you think? I don't think so. I mean, we didn't get any polling. uh, uh, We didn't get any polling. They included really Senator Manchin, not in any regularity. I mean, one poll is a poll, but you really need, you know, five or six polls to to get a trend line. I don't think it matters that much. I think I think independent voters realize that that this is a choice and, and this I sound like the Biden campaign now uh, that this will this will be a choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. So I don't think that a senator that they saw sometimes raising a ruckus. They don't know that much about Joe Manchin. Um, so, I mean, if he had gotten in what he's going to pull at three percent or two percent. No, yeah. I don't think I don't think that really moves the needle toward Biden or or, or toward Trump. There you go. And well, one thing that may or may not move. the. Uh, let's talk a little bit about something that could move the needle, because um, in the House, they've not given aid to Ukraine. They've in fact, many of them are siding with Putin. And so what? Yesterday. It was uh, it was known that uh, jailed Russian opposition figure Alexei Navalny had died. And that uh, immediately his spokesperson said, uh, uh, well, she said that it was uh, Russian officials and Putin who was responsible. And then we got Biden coming out for a second time in a week before reporters. Short 10-minute stint. He made no noticeable gaffes during that particular uh, stint in front of reporters and blamed the thugs in the Kremlin, uh, you know, Putin and his minions for it. Uh, you think that moves the needle at all, John? I, the uh, his opposition to um... well, Donald Trump has stated. Listen, Trump has said if one of our allies owes us money and and Russia, you know, attacks them, he, he, the hell with it, let Russia right, go. Yeah. Now you've got this coming out about uh, about Navalny, and does that move the needle at all for people who uh, following Donald Trump? No, I don't. I don't. I don't think so. I, I I think people, if they're paying attention, they know that that Donald Trump still, despite it all, wants Vladimir Putin and Russia to be an ally um, of the United States, but more so of himself. And we can speculate if he still has business. Um, ambitions in in Moscow or St. Petersburg, for example, we know that he's he's wanted to build in 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 the Russian capital in the past, um, yeah. and, and and just being a bit of a contrarian like Donald Trump is, um, you know, I, I I think that's that I think that drives part of his his Russia stance, which is which is bizarre, and he's dragged the Republican Party with him 
into this position of not so much backing Russia, but not backing Ukraine. And, um, you know, when you get into Russian opposition leaders, I just don't think the average voter cares that much. Well, except, 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 and I don't disagree at all, except when combined with Trump's recent comments that if NATO allies don't pay their 2% of their GDP to the NATO alliance, then what he would say to Russia is do whatever the hell you want in, right. in, uh, in, with respect to NATO allies. And it seems to me that someone who is prospective next president of the United States, who is saying essentially to NATO allies, look, if you don't pay money, I'm going to essentially encourage Russia to do whatever the hell they want, or I won't discourage Russia from doing whatever the hell they want. You know, for most Republicans, I would think that that is chilling. Uh, You know, they're from Nixon through Reagan, through the Bushes, the whole sort of through line has been containment of Russia uh, as it seeks to reassert itself and create recreate the the Soviet Union. And for this prospective president to say, you know, what the hell, if they don't pay us money, then we will be transactional and tell Russia that they are free to do whatever the hell they want. I just don't understand how that can't send chills through, you know, the collective spine of Republican and independent voters. And what I find the most disappointing is that those who worked in prior Republican administrations, and especially in the Trump administration, military and other diplomatic people, aren't speaking out more loudly about the dangers that this presents. And, you know, you'd think that you'd think that this would be disqualifying almost because essentially if if Russia is our most vulnerable geopolitical uh, um, adversary, adversary, I knew there was a word in English for that. Thank you. Adversary. Or or if you want to be, uh, you know, in the movies, adversary. Adversary. (laughs) Um, And he's encouraging them to attack our NATO allies over over you know payment of dues it's like inviting it's like oh it's as close to sort of treasonous language as I think you'll have ever heard from a the mouth of a presidential candidate and it seems to not have taken uh, the negative impact that I would have thought it would have well, I think a couple of points you got to make first and, and understand is I don't think the Republican Party exists in in Milwaukee. If they just want to rename it MAGA and get it over with, that's where they are. If you're not on board with Trump, you're not part of this party. Mm-hmm. So the GOP just doesn't exist. It, it's the MAGA party. Um, and, you know, Sean Connery is shy about our adversary, dear boy. I, I would say that if you can't understand that uh, Russia is an adversary, then you are part of the problem. And where it boils down to me is in those, again, those seven swing states. I don't think this is going to, I mean, it's going to, 
solidify those who don't like Donald Trump and just give them another reason not to vote for Donald Trump. Those who are going to vote for Donald Trump, the 74 million that did it last time and God knows how many this time, they're going to still be down with Donald Trump. But in those seven swing states where there could be where the difference could be in the difference in this election, and we've talked about it before, could really boil down to 50,000 votes somewhere in that vicinity is what I've heard. If that's the case, then this is an issue that I think will move the needle for them, because at the end of the day, it's it, you know, that and and the death of uh, Alexei Navalny, I think. It propels them to go, look, hey, this is serious. At the end of the day, this this is an issue that's serious. Putin is a danger. But I, I but at the end of that's all idle speculation as well. I mean, the independent voters in those states could go, well, I don't care if Navalny's dead. I still, you know, I'm still gonna vote for Trump, the lesser of two evils, uh, as they see it. One, but what one, do I one of the tricks there is 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 what Trump and other Republicans have done is uh, make the case that it doesn't affect us here, that that it doesn't matter as long as we yeah. don't get dragged in. And number two, um, throw in the spending piece of it that we don't we don't have forty billion dollars to give Ukraine, so we shouldn't help them. And it doesn't really affect us if Ukraine becomes a, a Russian state or if they remain independent. So that's the trick, and it, and within the Republican Party, that has worked. Now, yeah, head in the sand yeah, and don't worry exactly. about it because it doesn't affect. We could be isolationist, and it doesn't matter. And the simple fact of the matter is, when you say that, you're denying the, the place that we play, the role we play in the world stage. But we haven't been. And the Republicans I, haven't been isolationists since the 1930s, essentially, and so they are now. Yeah. Yeah, they are now. Well, yeah. uh, well, what I'm saying is that a portion of them are now. Um, and the question is whether those who don't believe in that, the Reagan-Nixon um, crowd of voters, not as a party, and I agree that that party is, is, is long gone, but there are still voters who vote along those, you know, issue lines. And so where where are they? Are they going to just hold their nose and say, well, Trump is going to get us a, a seventh vote on the Supreme Court to outlaw abortions or other things? Are they going to hold their nose around these, you know, sort of wedge cultural issues? Or are they going to say, you know what? Enough of that prioritization. I, I've got to worry about the, you know, the, the state of global democracy. And I, we just can't take a chance on 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 this guy. But they've also demonized. They they've also shit. turned Joe Biden into a demon almost. And you know, Bill Barr, yep. the form Trump's former attorney general, who Trump says awful things about, says that he would. He said this week he would vote for Trump over Biden because uh, voting for Trump is playing Russian roulette. Um, but but Biden is national suicide. And today in the Washington Post, there's a, a front page story by Josh Dawsey and others talking about how Trump has broken with their conservative kind of legal establishment. And and Dawsey and others who have great sources, his colleagues on the story, they talk to some of those folks in that conservative establishment, quote fingers, and they wanted to go on background, which they were granted to be candid. And I guess Dawsey and, and his colleagues asked, well, 
well, why don't you speak out if you have these concerns? And they are they essentially acknowledge they're afraid to speak out against Trump. And they're even willing to vote for him and try to work in the administration to to slow down whatever thing. So that's the mindset. The mindset isn't we got to speak out like Nikki Haley's doing right now. Look what's happening to her. She might not have a future in the party. And the fear that he is somehow going to like ruin my career or say mean things or that that is rooted in the party now. We can't speak out. John Cornyn, yeah, John Cornyn, who may be the Senate Majority Leader come January, he's going to have some challengers if Mitch McConnell steps aside or or or, or whatever. Um, he told me over the summer that he didn't want Trump to be the nominee. He had all these concerns about a second Trump term, and then uh, New Hampshire primary, the AP calls it at eight oh one. Cornyn puts out a statement at eight twelve endorsing Trump for president. So, I mean, there you go. That's well, I'll close with this before we hit the break. Navalny was had bravery that no one in the Republican Party has shown. And Navalny paid the price for it, whether you agree with oh, uh, for sure. policy or not. For sure. And that, I think, frightens the living crap out of everybody in MAGA land. And unfortunately, if they don't wake up, what happened when no one stood up against Hitler or no one stood up against Putin? And that's what you're going to end up with in the United States if you are afraid to stand up and be counted. And every single one of those people that have left the Republican Party because they disagree with Donald Trump are as much to blame as anyone else for not staying in that party and fighting Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump, it, it I'm... This is simply my opinion, but at the end of the day, you may have two old guys running for office, but one of them is batshit nuts, and the other one believes in the Constitution. So we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, J-A-T-Q Podcast. That's J-A-T-Q Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth with Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Caremore, our weekend review of the news. Just Ask the Press with former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call, John T. Bennett. Now, we've talked a lot about Donald Trump's problems. Let's talk a little bit about a problem that Donald Trump is may or may not have in Georgia. There was accusations that Fannie Willis, the uh, district attorney in Fulton County, was having an affair with her lead prosecutor in the case uh, against Donald Trump. And uh, so there was a hearing this week in which uh, her and uh, Mr. Wade, her 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 consort, uh, were called onto the carpet for him using apparently his uh, savings or his money that he got from government to go on a cruise with her and take other trips. And so basically accusing them of spending government money uh, personally, which I don't know what the hell that has to do with the Donald Trump case. Um, it, in fact, I don't think it has anything to do with the Donald Trump case. But nonetheless, 
Uh, Fannie Willis stunned everyone when she wasn't called, but came in and said she ran over to testify and then offered. If I don't know how to describe the testimony, but I will go back and, and Michael, I'll even ask you this question point blank. I had two, I had an uncle and a grandfather who were circuit court judges who said the worst witnesses in most cases were lawyers because they don't take their own advice and don't know when to shut up. And so she rambled for a while offering uh, multiple answers to simple yes or no questions and then went on. But may maybe you see it differently. Tell me, break it down for me. What happened there? Okay. So, you know, I always like to start with the backstory. The backstory is yeah. <laughs> you're a Hollywood screenwriter. What do you know? <laughs> so the backstory is, 13-ish people get indicted in Georgia for uh, trying to overturn the election. They all have different roles to play. And one of those persons, a uh, former GOP official, Roman, uh, hires a lawyer, as they all did. They all enter non-guilty pleas, except for the few that have now since pleaded guilty. And they're just going along with their case. They get a tip, in a sense, that the lead prosecutor that uh, has been hired by the state of Georgia is in a divorce proceeding and that it's ugly and that there are indications in that divorce proceedings that that lead prosecutor, Nathan uh, Wade, may have had an affair with uh, Fannie Willis. And so this guy, Roman, and his lawyer file a motion to disqualify for an evidentiary hearing seeking to disqualify Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade essentially for having this affair and what they said was, you know, sort of financial self-dealing. The judge, who I think could have dismissed this uh, motion uh, and quashed the request, didn't. He held a two-day evidentiary hearing to determine whether or not there was any financial impropriety. These consenting adults are allowed to have an affair. There's no question right. about that. And Wade is allowed to earn money. Um, from the from the state as an independent contractor working on their behalf. The question, therefore, that the judge wanted to hear was, was there any sort of self-dealing? Was there, like, you know, listen to the Menendez case in New Jersey. What's that case about? Which is that he did official acts in exchange for personal payments to him, essentially a fraud. So the question that they tried to put forth to the court was, do we have, or we believe we have, the same here in Georgia. So they hold this two-day evidentiary hearing, and there's absolutely no evidence of any self-dealing in that respect. What we learn is that somewhere in the course of um, the representation uh, by Wade of the state, he and Fannie Willis have an affair. He has long ago uh, divorced. He said his wife, Nathan Wade, had an affair in 2015, and from that moment forward, his wife and he were effectively divorced, but they stayed together for the sake of the children. But they had no, uh, no, no relationship whatsoever, except for the, um, you know, appearance for, for the sake of, of the kids. So here they go. They're working away, and they have an affair with one another. That affair ended in August. Um, Fannie Willis said he essentially is not my type, um, and the cape. And the case goes goes on. He was for a while, but not not for the long. Well, term. yeah, she said essentially something along the lines of uh, he he made comments about the, the the role of a woman 
um, that she took offense of, and um, and the and the relationship ended. So anyway, so they have this hearing, and um, they try to put on affirmative witnesses to say the relation the the affair started earlier. The person they put on was a disgruntled employee, former friend of Fannie Willis, who was fired by Willis and who seemed to clearly have a bias against her. And they said she put the 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 affair is starting a little bit earlier. Willis and Wade, who both testified, said, no, 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 she's completely wrong. Wade even said, look, during this period that she's talking about, I'm undergoing cancer treatment in a pandemic. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not I'm not being with anybody because my life sort of depends on this. Uh, and they call Fannie Willis to the stand. And I think that she is, you know, not to disagree with your your father and your uncle, um, or whomever. My uncle and my and my grandfather, but yeah. yeah, uncle and grandfather. I think she showed righteous indignation. I think that she was accused of essentially financial fraud in in yeah. in hiring uh, a person and then having this short term um, relationship with him. And she's. I don't disagree with that. And she said essentially, I, I, "How dare you?" Uh, and and they, yeah. what they did was they, the way it worked. The, two, the way the testimony came out is Wade sometimes would book, they would go on trips together. Sometimes Wade would book the tickets and pay for it on his credit card. Other times they each bought their own tickets. Whenever Wade bought his own ticket, she repaid him her portion of it. She repaid him in cash. She believed in paying in cash. In fact, her father testified that he told her to keep cash in the house, that this was a, a prudent thing to do because you never know. And she said, and he said, that's what I told her. He's a, he's a, I think a former circuit court judge, a lawyer for sure. Judge, yeah. And he said, this is what I told my daughter. And she does follow, and she follows that advice. There's nothing, it's not, she's not being charged with money laundering. Right. You know, I had a lot of family who were in retail um, and they would get a lot of cash and, and they would also pay in cash. That was just, they kept cash. Um, and there's nothing wrong about keeping cash. And so, but all of this aside, this doesn't have anything to do with the Trump case. No, I understand that. But what they're trying to do here, Brian, is get Fannie Willis, especially Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade disqualified. If Nathan Wade is disqualified, and I think, frankly, he should step down. If I were Nathan Wade, I'd wait for a judge's decision that says you did nothing wrong. And they'd say, you know what? Thanks a lot. I've had enough. Let somebody else take the case. But the disqualification of Fannie Willis could result in the disqualification of the entire office. If it results in the disqualification of the entire office, then there in Georgia is a process by which there's like a nine-person panel that has to appoint a new person. Now, if you remember in this case, there was one person who was indicted, who, ran, who was a political person who got um, elected to his political position, and Fannie Willis in her private capacity, held a fundraiser for his opponent. Uh, she, the judge recused her from that case and recused her office from that case. That was like nine months ago. And this this panel still hasn't appointed a new prosecutor in that case. So the thought here is if she gets disqualified from this case and it goes into this black hole of this commission, this case may never get brought. And if Fannie Willis... Well, yeah, that's... And if Fannie Willis then loses the election... Then the next DA 
comes in and says, you know what? I've looked this over just like in the, in the New York case. Cy Vance was going to do something and then Bragg comes in and says, I'm not going to do something. You know, the hope is just to put this thing off in the hopes that it, it goes away. And this was their Hail Mary attempt. I think it should fail. I think that neither of them will be have found to have. Do you think her testimony would help it fail or will hurt the case? I think help or hurt. I think it helped the case in so much as she directly disputed the allegations against her, disputed the one witness that the uh, moving people, the moving parties had against her, uh, this, this disgruntled former employee that Willis fired. And I think she's, she was forceful in, in, in her denials. And coupled with Wade's testimony and the father's testimony, I don't see how the judge doesn't rule in their favor. And remember, the thing that you have to keep in mind here is that this this judge, but wait, judge, right? This judge worked for Fannie Willis. He was in that office. He knows her temperament. He knows she's a fiery, independent, um, uh, strong-willed woman. And I don't think he's going to look at her and say, "Oh well, the fact that she was emotional about being accused of fraud somehow negatively impacts the case." I think that. I think that she helped. Boy, lawyers get a lot more leeway in court than uh, regular folk. I'll say that because if that were a regular folk in in testifying, I think the appearance would be that perhaps they had screwed the pooch. And to that point, John, I know you've had some opinion about it. I don't think this plays well in out in public. I think the appearance is quite different than than the reality that Michael's talking about. First of all, I don't think there should have been a hearing. Mm-hmm. I, I I agree with you there, Michael. I, I think the idea, why? It has absolutely nothing to do with the case. Well, can I just on add one, though. before John um, yeah. corrects me, can I just do one, add one yeah. thing, which is to say the dual purpose of this meeting, besides getting these guys disqualified, was they said that this impropriety, this financial impropriety, this sexual impropriety, was so severe that the court should dismiss the charges. The, so their yeah. second their second gambit, if you will, is first, let's try to get these guys off the case, and that'll delay it for an indefinite period of time. And then also, let's say, while we're at it, why don't you just dismiss the whole case uh, also? And that- Well, that's a prima facie case that doesn't exist. There's, I there's, mean, no, there's no basis for, I mean, if there was a basis right. for disqualifying these people, it just means that these people are disqualified. And the case gets right. turned over to somebody else in the case. It has nothing, nothing to do with the, the merits of the case. Right. The All right. Sorry. That, so that, I just want to add. No, this. no, you're right. I, I agree with that. And I agree with you that she made a forceful, uh, I, I mean, her, what she said in court, you know, how dare you, was played great maybe legally. I'm talking about in the, in the court of public opinion. Well, I think if you're, and, I think if you're a woman and you watch um, this hack against you for your oh. personal life, your your the way you live your life, your right to engage in um, adult relationships with people of your choice, and you're accused of, of, of wrongdoing for that. I think if I'm a woman watching this, and she says, you know, like, essentially, how dare you? Um, how dare you try to put me on trial? It's like the old, you know, sort of sexual assault cases where the, the lawyer said, well, weren't you dressed in a provocative way? Weren't you, you know, flirtatious? Weren't you? So the rape victim becomes 
the 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 cause of the problem, no. not the rapist. And I think there's a there's a similar dynamic here where she's saying, "How dare you put me on trial for what is perfectly appropriate behavior um, on my part? How dare you?" And I think that you know, for if you're watching it as a woman, you might just be saying, "You know, you go, girl. Um, don't let them. Don't let you." Don't let them do that to you. And, and of course, we're now talking in the post Roe v. Wade world where we no longer have abortion. So I think that <laughs> I don't know how that plays. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I think these are two different, obviously, two different questions. I think the, the most immediate matter is did the, the various defense attorneys put, you know, more than a reasonable doubt in the mind of the judge about what happened here and the timeline and the motivations uh, of uh, Miss Willis and Mr. Wade. And, you know, it was difficult to get a read, you know, watching on CNN as I was uh, on Thursday. And it was a wild ride and I was riveted. Um, the judge by the end was not very riveted. He was clearly impatient with everyone involved. But it, it was interesting. He was cutting off the defense attorneys at the end of the questioning of Miss Willis. Uh, but he also threatened to consider her a hostile witness, kick her out of the courtroom, and uh, throw out her testimony. So he was not impressed uh, really with anyone, at least on Thursday. Uh, you could see the judge was, was, um, was, was tired of it all. Now, he also, during the course of the questioning of, of, of Mr. Willis and Miss Wade, also um, instructed them to Wade answer the question. <laughs> he questioned the the germaneness of some of the questions from the various defense attorneys. So what I'm trying to say is we don't really know where he's leaning at this point. I will say, um, I do disagree with Michael, there were contradictions in their testimony they contradicted each other, Willis and then I'm sorry, Wade first and then and then Willis. Um, he said, and you know, obviously glad that he's recovered from his cancer battle, um, that he didn't really go anywhere during COVID and he was focused. I think he said he was focused on health. She said that they did visit each other in 2021 and that he did come to her office and then she did get flustered. Um, oh, well, maybe we picked up the dinner or the lunch and brought it back to my office, but I don't remember, but maybe we ate it there and maybe it was sterile. He said he was sticking to sterile environments and 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 she said they went out to lunch more than once. So there were contradictions. And for right now, it only matters if the judge if the judge thinks that there was more to their relationship, before he was appointed the lead attorney in, in the Trump uh, overturning the election case. And were those contradictions enough? And there were only you know two or three of them. Um, were those contradictions enough to make him conclude something's just not right about all of this? And I conclude that they acted improperly and the best thing for this for, for this case, is to replace one or both of them. Um, and I'll say the, the, the cash thing for public opinion, um, I don't know I don't know if people who aren't really into politics watched most of this all day or had a job that 
the most lot. riveting TV, wasn't it? Yeah, but but how many people were glued to it like I was to pick up on these contradictions or read uh, a 2,000-words takeaway piece the next morning uh, that pointed some of this out? Um, you have to look at the race matter here. These are both African-Americans, both black people. Um, that is not going to sit well with some folks. The fact that a, a black woman... She was righteously indignant. I thought she made, I thought Miss Willis made some excellent points. I thought a lot of this has been too intrusive. And she did defend herself and good for her. And she made the point to the defense lawyers she's not on trial. Mr. Wade is not on trial, no matter how hard they try to make this about the two of them, that this is about Donald Trump trying to overturn the election in Georgia. By the way, he's on tape. Um, but you also have to question what 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 will the judge think of the decision whenever it was 2023 or if he thinks the relationship the romantic relationship started before Mr. Wade was appointed by Miss Willis to this case the fact that they continued on on the case together whenever the relationship started and one of them did not say to a superior, and she admitted that they did not report this and they were supposed to. That's another impropriety. At, at some point, okay, we want to be romantically involved. You know, I guess Mr. Wade is going to step down from the case and, and I, Miss Willis, as Fulton County DA, I'm going to find a new lead, lead prosecutor. Um, we just think that that's, so they didn't do that. They didn't tell anyone, not even a superior. If any of us is working with someone and we, you know, if, if we were all single or, or whoever was single and we started dating a colleague, most places you have to report that. And and, and Fulton County DA office is one of those places and they didn't. So this is not as cut and dry as that. that there are some missteps here. And I, the three of us had said that this, wasn't above board on, on previous episodes. So I don't think this is a slam dunk. Um, we've all talked about how Democrats have a history of snatching defeat from what should be pretty easy victories. Now the Republican yeah. party, certainly the Republican party certainly has caught that ailment. Just look at house Republicans, but I, well, we'll get think, into that in a minute. I don't think it is beyond the realm of possibility that this judge disqualifies one of these individuals there were mistakes made here and just because someone gave powerful testimony doesn't mean the judge his metric is completely different than everyone else's and i just i just i just wonder if if he might conclude that it's best if one or both of them is not involved in this case yeah the question i guess john and i don't disagree with that the question is and as i said before if I were Nathan Wade, um, I would step down. I'd say, you know, thank yeah. you very much. I've put in thankless, countless hours. Yeah. Um, and and uh, and I'm done. The most important, the most important thing is that he not disqualify Willis. Yeah, I hear you, Mike. I hear you on that. I hear you on that. If if in fact that is done, and I I see that as a, a potential and possibility as well. 
Donald Trump wins because it's going to delay the case. Absolutely. Well, right? And that's that's part of the goal. I think Michael... Michael well, that's, that's all I, it is. Yeah. This is much ado about nothing. It's Donald Trump once again trying to delay the case. Whether you had lunch or not with with or win during the COVID, all of that is inconsequential to it, me. To it's me, not it's not about like, lunch. But it's not. About- I know, but that's what it. That, but I know it's not about lunch. But it really is. I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's what it's about is the appearance of impropriety mm-hmm. to delay a case, and the actions taken by these two individuals have absolutely zipped to do with a gathering of evidence against Donald Trump. Now, whether or not he's the best guy to prosecute the case, I agree with Michael. I I, I think if he gets exonerated, slapped on the wrist, whatever, he backs off. But at the end of the day, it's a successful move by Donald Trump to delay the case. That's that's to me. But, you know, we'll we'll see. Uh, You know, John may be right that the judge may say, look, nobody did anything that requires as a matter of law recusal or disqualification yeah but it's my strong suggestion or my hope or my order but i don't know how that it gets to order if there isn't is there if it is there isn't you know legal grounds he he doesn't i don't think gets to make a decision that um It's the be- in the best interest of the case for him to disqualify somebody unless there's a basis for disqualification. I don't you right. can't make it up out of whole cloth. Um, but he could signal he could signal uh, to the parties that this is where he's heading and you can get a you know sort of compromise solution. Anyway, enough about this case. It's it is <laughs> it is what it is. It is what it is. We'll take a short break and when we come back, a lot more to unpack. So stick around. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, with our weekly review of the news, Just Ask the Press. With me, as always, is former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call, John T. Bennett. We had talked earlier, guys, about uh, Alexei Navalny being dead and a little bit of how that plays in the, in the world of, well, the international world. But there's also something else that uh, occurred this week in, in that uh, zone of influence, and that was uh, President Biden in a call with Ukrainian uh, President Vladimir Zelensky directly tied Ukraine's withdrawal from the key town of uh, Avadika to uh, Congress's inability to approve further aid. And that, of course, has to do with Russia. The Senate passed a bill including $60 billion for Ukraine, but House Speaker Mike Johnson says he still doesn't plan, plan to bring the uh, measure to the floor. John, I'll let you unpack that a little bit. They're gone for two weeks anyway, and Biden was railing against that, saying if they really cared about what was going on in the world, they'd keep their butt in, in D.C. for a little while longer, but they haven't. 
so does does you know? And honestly, before I I turn it over to you, I'm sure you have heard as I have from my Republican sources. Did you ever think there'd be a time when you wish Kevin McCarthy were the, still the Speaker of the House? So with that, go for it. <laughs> uh, this ought to be fun. Let's see if we can unpack this one. Uh, yeah. the, the, there is a movement in the House uh, among a group of uh, moderates, moderates, um, CQ vote studies, by the way, uh, subscribe today, uh, suggests that there there aren't really any moderates in either party, but I'll let our listeners subscribe and check that data out. Uh, there's a lot of data, or is it data? Who knows? Uh, the, the, the speaker says he will not put the Senate passed bill, which the White House supports and the president supports, on the House floor. He says the border package does not go far enough for conservatives. Um, it's not, you know, they don't use the word hardline, but that's that's what they're saying. Um, a funny thing happened on the way to recess. Uh, a group of moderates in the House, the Problem Solvers Caucus, led a leading talks and unveiling a proposal, uh, a national security supplemental for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and it does have a border package that has more of uh, what what is known as HR two. That is uh, the obviously it's the second bill introduced this Congress in the House. And it was the the conservatives, um, their immigration and border bill, which was immediately ruled dead on arrival uh, by Senate Democrats. So you see where we're going with this. So here yeah. are we we had a bipartisan package from the Senate. Um, it got seven. They got over seventy votes in that chamber, and it's DOA. Uh, a bunch of Republican votes in the House for HR two, DOA in the Senate. So here come the House moderates to give it their best try. The White House has not really weighed in yet. They, they, you know, this came out late in the week. Um, so the White House is still reviewing and assessing the, the House moderates bill. Johnson is mum so far. Uh, I think the fact that Republican moderates uh, like uh, Mr. Fitzpatrick um, from Pennsylvania, by the way, Pennsylvania swing state the fact that they yep. they sense what Mitch McConnell sensed months ago and while well, McConnell directed James Langford senator from Oklahoma to get involved with the White House and, and Senate Democrats they invited their colleagues from the House to join that didn't happen on either side it's important to note on either side they didn't show up um McConnell sensed that if they if Republicans were seen as not trying to solve the problem at the border, they would be punished by voters in November. The Fitzpatrick's of the world in the House um, sense the same thing. So they're trying to revive this process after everyone thought it was dead. Um, and crazier things have happened. I think this is still unlikely, but crazier things have happened um, there, there was frustration from from moderate Republicans in both chambers when Johnson killed the Senate, uh, killed the Senate package. They could have amended it on the House floor, sent it back over. Or, to the Senate. Could there be a reconciliation bill? No, that reconciliation. Yeah. Um, you you have to control both chambers, and, and no one does. But that could yeah. happen. That that now we could get something under reconciliation in January, depending on on the. Yeah, you know, who controls the White House, the House, and the Senate? Yeah, 
um, that could happen if if both parliamentarians rule an immigration bill germane under the reconciliation rules. And well, let's not let's not put everyone to sleep. Yeah, let's not go down there. We'll, we'll um, so that's everybody. down the road. But right now, I mean, this is there is a pulse here. There's a pulse again. There wasn't a pulse for the last week and a half. Um, you know, senators are in at the a lot of senators, a lot of House members, too. And administration officials are at the Munich Security Conference. They're not exactly pouring through the pages of this House moderate um, supplemental proposal. But they will when they get back. And I think by the end of the week, by by Wednesday, Thursday into Friday, we'll get a real sense if this is real or if this is just folks worried about their reelection trying to do something. Well, I don't think that it plays bad for Biden either no, way. No, I no. mean, he's blaming Congress and this is an example of when the man's right. That's that's <laughs> yes. Biden as soon as they got a bill out, and I said this last week, uh, I say this, I think two weeks ago here, um, this is all good for Biden. This is all good for Biden yeah. and Democrats. As soon as but the, the bill problem was is, it's not good for Ukraine. The, no. At the end of the day, the, all of this delay, I think there's something to be said when Biden blames Congress well, and says, yeah, let's let's yeah, state. I can get into that briefly. Um, yeah. I mean, the the fact that Ukraine lost another city. All of this stuff going on with Putin doesn't I, – I don't think it bodes well for Ukraine. I don't – And internationally, yeah. that's that's the bigger issue for Europe and how we sit in an international community. I mean we can look in our bubble, right, in, in the U.S. and go, well, this is good for Biden. This, but but overall, this is not good for the world. It's, it's, it's not good for Ukraine, but, Mr. President, I will say this. You got – the bill through the Senate when you did, it would have taken another week or two to get through the House, another day or two for you to sign it. And who knows how long before the money was actually allocated out. Do you have to do competitions for contracts for the ammunition and, and other things? So what I'm saying is this pot of money that was in the Senate bill would not have been available to help Ukrainian troops that lost the city um, recently. Right, okay. This money, this money, and and the things that this money would have bought—the ammunition, body armor, whatever else—that was months away from being procured here, and 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 even more months from actually getting into theater. So I know what the president is trying to say. He's making a broad point, but when you get down into it, it takes getting it, into the weeds. You get into the bureaucracy. And that slows everything down. So this stuff, the the stuff that the Senate bill would have bought months away from being in theater. Michael, that's, uh, uh, I'll turn it over to you. Well, I want to just back up just a little bit and talk about the immigration as much um, as I would love to talk about Ukraine. I think you guys have covered that uh, comprehensively. The one thing I wanted to ask you guys essentially about this is we had an election in New York in the district in which I grew up on Long Island. I think it's third New York, but I'm not sure exactly. Um, the district that um, Santos represented and the former congressman who held that seat, the Democratic congressman who held that seat, won re-election. And um, against um, uh, a Jewish Ethiopian woman who fought in the Israeli Defense Forces and had, you know, some 
uh, amount of support in, in that um, district. But he won conclusively. I mean, I think he had like 55-ish percent of the, of the vote, 54 percent of the vote. And he ran on crime, the economy, and immigration. And he said, essentially, there is a solution for immigration if only the parties would, you know, come together and meet in the middle. And that appears from the um, takeaways from the election to have resonated in in that community, which is a multi-ethnic uh, community. Um, and I wonder whether or not Republicans going home to their district, seeing a, a moderate Democrat win on immigration by saying, you know, it's enough already, a pox on everybody's house, we need to do something. Do they come back and say, you know what, I wonder whether that issue will resonate in my district. And especially, especially the other New York Republicans who flipped um, Democrat districts in this last election, what are they looking at when they go back to their districts and think, oh my, if I run against a Democrat who's going to take the Tom Susie um, play card, what does that mean for my re-election? And do they therefore, you know, work with Democrats? Because they remember the Democrats only need a few votes um, to to move this thing forward. Because any Republican can vote, uh, uh, you know, no confidence, whatever the word is, uh, against Johnson and throw the House into one. Yeah, into um, one vote. Right, but, I understand that, but yeah, yeah. but if, all I'm saying is that. It seems to me that if this bill is on life support and these people are going home to their districts and they're looking at the Suzy election uh, returns and they're saying, I better I better be part of this immigration solution. Maybe when they come back, there's some I don't, momentum seems a, a, a very aggressive word, but maybe, <laughs> maybe there's some hope that this can be resurrected. Anyway, that's my, that's my that's my that's my 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 wonder. Frankly, if I were one of these Republicans in New York um, facing re-election in what looks to be a very challenging opportunity for them, I'd go switch my party and go and say I'm going to become a Democrat now and um, flip the house, let uh, Hakeem Jeffries run out the uh, the clock on this on this Congress and and have them see be seen as champions. Um, in their districts that are going to vote most likely Democratic. But what do I know? Mm -hmm. as, as, John? This, as this as this podcast has demonstrated overwhelming, with overwhelming clarity, what I know is very, very liberal. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised. And still, it's more than I know. I, Go I'm ahead, John. I'm surprised it's still going because that's true of all three of us. <laughs> We 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 we're what we're seeing, I think, with this uh, immigration renewed immigration push in the House is is yeah a, a, a realization. You know, they were talking before the Susie victory, um, but it it obviously picked up steam after he won on Tuesday. I think, and you know, we we call him the Biden. We we can call him the Biden seventeen now because Santos was eighteenth, but he's been replaced. Those are. Yeah. Um, House Republicans who won districts in 2022 that Joe Biden won in 2020, those 
that's really the key to house control is what happens uh, to those 17. So the 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 former Biden 18. Um, well, the Republicans are 0 for 1 in those just focus on the seats, not the individuals. They're now 0 for 1. And I do think a lot of House Republicans are concerned about this election. Um, Donald Trump has not had coattails. So even if Trump even if Trump kind of walks to an electoral college victory, he hasn't shown any ability to win big numbers in congressional elections. So they're not they're not counting on that. They, they House Republicans know that and even an easy Trump electoral college victory doesn't mean very much for them. So, yeah, they're concerned, especially those Biden 18. They're concerned. They want to start getting stuff done. I talked to Mike Lawler, who's one of those. He's from the state of New York uh, recently. And he said, yeah, we need to we need to get our, our feet, our, yeah, our collective foot on the gas pedal on legislation and start doing stuff. He said that's what people want. That's what he hears when he goes back home to New York. Um, so, yeah, they're concerned. But um, I, I'm not sure that I would, you know, go to the uh, go to your local um, casino and and put in a, a ticket that Congress is going to start passing bipartisan legislation anytime soon. So I think you'll see pushes like this on immigration and maybe some other issues um, that's really driven by by that center in the House. But right now, Democrats are feeling very good uh, about the Susie victory. I think they'll 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 be able to they already are say that well we had a border bill we had a border package we we voted for it in the Senate our colleagues in the Senate sent it over to us and you know this um, this very green very MAGA speaker blocked it from even getting a vote and by the way it would pass the House the Senate bill would pass yeah. the House um, so so that's that's a big question here I think for those House Republicans is how do they try to shape the Johnson speakership? Uh, you know, he he's he's still like McCarthy, worried about his conservative flank. But now it's the the moderates who are starting to make some noise, and I think that's probably reflective in what their campaigns are seeing in their internal polls. There you go. Um, I we're gonna uh, boy we could keep this going for a while, but I'm let's let's keep we going. We'll we'll just skip next week and just right on into the future. Keep, keep on going. <laughs> well, before we go, there is one thing that I'd love to bring, and I'm going to credit Newsmax's James Rosen for first bringing this to my attention. He broke he broke this particular piece of news uh, uh, that I saw, uh, and it's Paul McCartney's left-handed bass guitar. Is Hofner viola bass the one that's missing? It purchased the miss. It was purchased in Germany in 1961. Used on the tracks such as "Twist and Shout" and "She Love You." She loves you. It was stolen in 1972. But this week, thanks to an online campaign called the Lost Bass Project, McCartney was reacquainted with his Hofner viola bass. Oh, they so they found it because this they found it. This and has returned been, it to Paul. This has been ongoing. For years and years, this was the one musical instrument that McCartney lost track of, and he yep. and they've been really asking for I don't know the the Newsmax Newsmax reporter, but this has been well documented in Beatles circles. This missing yeah. this missing bass, and and I knew that they had the online campaign, but they 
how do do we know what the circumstances of it? I mean, did just did Paul McCartney wake up one morning to get his newspaper and there's the base <laughs> sitting at the yeah. front door? Well, it was we the Lost Base Project who asked people and they found the person who owned it, not necessarily the person who stole it, but they found someone who who thought that they owned it and it was returned to Paul. And that was uh, and and you know James is he's been on the show before. He's he's a big Beetle freak. And he, you know, you when you walk down, um, oftentimes when I walk down in the basement of the White House, and he's there, he's got a little piece of Beatle memorabilia right near him. So it, it's always fun to talk to him about it. But yeah, I hadn't, I, I, I was not aware. But he broke that news this week, and everyone else has picked it up since then. Yeah. So you know, so, you know, one thing. Can I just say one thing? I, uh, for um, for my podcast, I interviewed Nina Totenberg, the the great um, public. National Public Radio Supreme Court reporter. Her dad, um, Roman Totenberg, was a a master uh, violinist. You know, in in the Itzhak Perlman sort of category of of violinists, and he did a concert, put the violin in his uh, um, dressing room. One you know went out to talk to people, mm-hmm. came back, the violin was gone, and for the next like forty years. They're searching uh, for this violin. He believes he knows who stole it. Wow. But he can't get enough probable cause for there to be a search um, incident to it. And then time passes. Poor Roman Totenberg dies with his Stradivarius still missing. And um, only recently, in the last five or so years, some the the wife of the person, the strange wife of the the person who Totenberg believed had stolen the violin um, is like going through her attic, uh, to, you oh, know, no. cleaning out the attic. And oh, there is no. this violin. Found it. There's this violin. <laughs> it, you can read all about this. You can listen to my podcast or you can read all about this. But there it is. <laughs> and the name of the podcast and, is. Well, there's the there's the Stradivarius. And so she's not sure what exactly it is. She gets this, you know, they break open the case and she takes it to a violin guy to say, you know, so what do I got here? And he says, you've got a call from me to the FBI because this is this is a this is a this pearl handled Stradivarius. They called it the Totenberg. Um, wow. And um, and they found it and they found it and they, you know, they they with tender, loving care um, restored it. And I, I think it I forget where it is now. It may be. Um, at like Juilliard um, um, music um, school, and people are using it or something. But it's a, it's like the McCartney base. It's a just yeah. It's one of these stories where at the end of the story you go yes, you know yes. <laughs> so p- plug the podcast, Michael. The name of it is that said with Michael Zeldin. As you can tell from my conversations, I have these animated hour long conversations with people about all sorts of interesting. Stories. The one that was just released was with Dave Kindred, the uh, one of the great sports writers of of all. Great time. one, by the way. Thanks for the link. Yeah. I enjoyed it a lot. And um, this coming Thursday, they we release pretty much every Thursday. We'll be on Ulysses S. Grant's um, fight against the Ku Klux Klan, and the, the week after that is about immigration. Actually, um, in the World War One. Uh, period, and then I think and then after that I think I'm I I want to talk to Katie Couric. There you go. 
it, and John, your turn. Your where can we find you? Uh, rollcall.com. Congress, as uh, mentioned before, on recess, but uh, we will keep cranking out the content. There. <laughs> well, there's a plug. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I'll, I'll mention about Paul's vase. Please, please me. It's the base you hear on Love Me Do. Twist and shout. All my loving. She loves you. It was a backup base for him until the Beatles broke up in 69. Paul had it until one dark, cold night in October 1972 when tragedy struck and someone stole it in the night from a van used to transport equipment. And with that said, I am Brian Karam. This is Just Ask the Question. Paul McCartney has his base back. And Ukraine should get its money. And by God, we'll see who gets prosecuted coming this week. Jack Smith on Tuesday. Uh, I guess soon we'll get a decision on whether or not there's immunity. So stick around, folks. There's a lot more, and we'll catch you next week. Thanks for joining us.